Good morning. Welcome to Come and Reason Sabbath School class. Uh, my name is Lori Atkins, filling in for Dr. Tim Jennings today. Glad we're, you're here in Collegedale. Got some visitors in class today and welcome our online community. Let's begin our class with prayer this morning. Father God, we are humbled and grateful to be here in your presence today. We ask for your spirit to be poured out on this class, on us individually, and on this nation. Um, We need your help, and we need the power that the Spirit can provide. So we ask you to guide our study, open our hearts and minds, and continue to teach us what it is to be like you, is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this is the 13th Sabbath. It's the final week in our quarterly Making Friends for God. The title of this week's lesson is A Step in Faith... But we're not really going to <laughs> use much of the lesson content today. Sorry for those of you who studied. Me, in the last week of the quarterly, I like to do kind of a recap and a review of all the concepts that we've learned over the course of the previous 12 weeks to kind of hit the high points and to see how much we actually learned. If we learned anything, did any of it stick? Um, and then we want to focus on practical application so that we can put what we've learned into practice with the goal of implementing, implementing, integrating those concepts into our daily lives and particularly considering the significance of what we've been studying this quarterly on how to witness effectively, truthfully, the importance of our own personal testimony and how these are skills that can be honed and refined just like our muscles They need to be exercised. So, since I didn't find that too much in the Lesson 13 content, we're going to take a little bit of literary license from the quarterly, do a little bit of a recap, and some quizzing. I'm going to quiz just to see how much you remember, what concepts you found especially profound in this quarter, or those that made an impact or maybe find out if there's some topics you still had questions on. I see see some people out here that I know have steel trap memories, Eve. (laughs) So, can count on some feedback from you. But based on what I just said, before I move on, I want to acknowledge that I've had some feedback. I know there's some folks that feel like sometimes there's a lot of repetition in our classes, that we just keep going over and over the same concepts again and again. And you know what? They're right, we do. So why would we do that? Why is that necessary? Yes. Yes. To say that some of us are trying to deprogram maybe sounds a little harsh, but we are definitely trying to reprogram, and I'm speaking for myself, based on what we know and learn about the law of worship and the law of exertion, We are simultaneously trying to generate some new neurons, some new paradigms, some new ways of thinking about and processing our reality, while at the same time, we are trying to kill off some other neurons. Those old ways of thinking and reacting and behaving, and I'm telling you, those old neuropathways are deep. They're entrenched. And in some cases, nearly fossilized. Again, I'm speaking for myself. 
So to really change our neurobiology and our thought patterns, we have to keep studying. And sometimes we have to keep studying the same thing. We have to keep searching and keep assimilating these new truths and new light in order for them to become not just something interesting that we heard in Sabbath school. We want them to be internalized and become part of us, part of our own beliefs and values, concepts that we agree with because through the Holy Spirit and the weight of evidence, not because of proclamation, the weight of our own evidence, and our reasoning and wrestling through, we have finally become fully persuaded in our own minds. That's why we repeat things. And don't forget, we do have a precious online family that join us every week. There's somebody new joining right now who's never watched this before and is wondering, what are they talking about? What's a natural law? What's an imposed law? I don't get it. What's design law? What's penal substitution? Never heard of that. So this is why we will likely continue to maybe go over the same ground again and again, more than once. Why you may hear things that may appear to be repetitive, but it's for a meaningful purpose and it's by design. See what I did there? So all this quarter, we've been looking at making friends for God, studying the importance of our own personal witness. In week one, lots of sleeps since then. Week one, we talked about the reasons why we witness, the primary goals of witnessing. Remember any of those? It strengthens us by witnessing. Absolutely. More, and it actually strengthens our relationship with God by sharing with others. Totally. And we're going to talk about that. Just like we said, these are, these are skills. These are muscles that have to be exercised. If you remember, uh, Dr. Jennings read an email this quarter from somebody, I think in California that was looking to, uh, kind of distill her story down to something she could share in an elevator ride. That's about the length of time. A lot of times that we have interacting with people, that's as much as we have to, to leave a nugget and get some attention. And so you should really have kind of a, a very concise bit of your story that you could share with somebody in a checkout line or on an elevator ride. And it's very tough to come up with that on the spot. It's okay to develop that outside of the the actual scenario and practice. So do we witness, what about to get people to join a certain denomination? Do we want to build the, build the church roles or the tithe roles? No, Stacy. I don't think a denomination is essential. It's just that God has been lied about and misrepresented by, especially with Lucifer, the origin there with, that he's just not fair, he's holding right. you, convincing Adam and Eve that, hey, he's lying to you about the fruit, go ahead and eat it and all that. He wants his children back. Right. When you lie about God, anything that you have to say is always a detriment to him because he's the epitome of every characteristic that's good. Yeah. And so when people talk about how God wants to burn people and torture them in hell for the ceaseless ages of time... People get angry and say, I don't want to believe in a stupid God like that. And they don't. And they're angry. Yeah. They, there's a part of them that kind of believes it, but then hates him for being that. Absolutely. 
So our mission is to not only have a relationship with him and to be saved ourselves, but to try to help him get his children back, that he can spend eternal life with them by sharing what the truth is about him. Yes. So what's the point in us having eternal life, knowing that all the people that we left behind, because we didn't want to be bothered by sharing them, that, hey, there's this really awesome other alternative lifestyle, you know, it's called eternal life with no sorrow, no sin, no suffering, no death. Yeah. And you don't tell them? And what a privilege that we are engaged in that process because the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit could do that work without us. You know what I mean? They have, they have the capability, but we get to be engaged. We get to be partners and cooperate with him in that, in that endeavor. And it's a real privilege that we should be grateful for. So what about... Even if we witness to someone effectively, does that mean we're going to agree on everything? All at, all of our doctrines are going to be the same. All our ways of looking at things are the same. All the denominations we have now are not agreeing. Well, exactly. Even within denominations, yeah. <laughs> there's some disagreement. But I mean, look at the example that we had from the apostles, from, from Paul and Peter, from Paul and Barnabas. Were they in complete agreement on all the things they should do, things they how way should they should worship, things they should eat, the days? No. What did they agree on? Jesus is our Savior. His the Jesus is Lord and God's character and methods of love were practiced. They were in agreement on that. So ultimately we witness because we love and care about other people. And love is outward moving. It's focused on others. It's not focused on self. If God's love is poured into our hearts, we can't keep it to ourselves. It overflows onto people that we come in contact with. We want people we know and love to experience the peace, love, and joy that we've found, particularly our family and our loved ones. So we saw this concept clearly illustrated in week seven when we reviewed the parable of the laborers in the field. I know you remember the familiar story. It's in Matthew 20, where some laborers came early in the day looking for a day job. They agreed to a day's wage, and they went to work. Some of the folks, then some more folks came at noon. They were told by the vineyard owner, I will pay you what is right. And they joined the other laborers in the field. Then later in the day, just like an hour before quitting time, more workers joined for the same agreed-upon right pay. And they finished that last hour of the shift with the rest of the crew. When it came time to settle up, everyone got paid the same. The guy who labored eight, ten hours in the vineyard in the heat of the day got the same pay as the dude who came at like 5 o'clock in the afternoon and only worked for an hour. Do you have like an immediate kind of visceral reaction to that story, to that outcome? Does, doesn't it seem to violate some universal standard of fairness? It does. Under human law constructs. But... When you shift to a design law interpretation, it really changes everything. And it explains one of the big reasons why we witness. When we understand that the worker's reward 
all the workers reward, the agreed upon right wage is eternal life with Jesus. And the vineyard is this earth where we witness and work to save souls. Then suddenly the story is completely fair and is such a beautiful picture of how reality actually works. So the ones who got called early accepted Jesus into their lives early. And not only did they get the reward of eternal life, just like the thief on the cross got in his last hour on this earth, but they also got to work with God their whole lives. They learned how to work in the field. They're also healed. Yes. So they have a life that is more full of joy and abundant life here on earth. We're going to get there. They learned God's methods. They learned God's principles of how to fish for men. They became more efficient in how to wield the sword of truth and love while leaving people free. These are skills that must be practiced. They must be exercised. Remember the quote we read two weeks ago that said, In this work, and she was talking about witnessing and ministering, as in every other, skill is gained in the work itself. It is in the water, not on land, that men learn to swim. So their characters were more developed, more mature. They have become more like the landowner. Whereas the one who came in the last hour, he got eternal life. He received the same pay, but he didn't get the blessing of working all his life with the landowner. See how design law removes any hint of arbitrariness or unfairness from the story? There's no prejudice or bias being portrayed, just an accurate depiction of reality. Back to witnessing. This is why we witness. Talk about laboring in the field. How many of you, how many of us have labored over our parents, over our family and friends, maybe particularly over our children, not just over their eternal salvation, but because we want them to know the God we know so that it says in John 17, three, their eternal life can start right now. We want them to know the blessing of working in the field in close communion with the landowner. We want their minds, hearts and characters to be molded and shaped by the Holy spirit to be like Christ. This is why we witness. So is all witnessing necessarily helpful? Can witnessing ever be harmful? Distant relative who felt that it was important when she was in the store one day to witness, and basically she was sharing about her diet. Um, And to be fair, it was actually not a healthy diet. Um, (laughs) And she looked awful. So that witness was useless. Yes. And maybe even harmful. And maybe even harmful. Yeah. So the same quote I just read about uh, swimming in the water. She also said, it is by training in the common duties of life and in ministry to the needy and suffering that efficiency is assured. Without this, the best meant efforts are often useless and even harmful. So yes, if we're witnessing something wrong or that's not true, or as a misrepresentation, we can be doing harm. What about what happened to Pharaoh when Moses witnessed to him? Did that do him good, or was it harmful? It was irrelevant. <laughs> it was irrelevant to Pharaoh. 
because he rejected it. He was hard already. Correct. But there was an opportunity for him, had he responded to truth, he could have been softened. Don't you think, at least at first with, with the first plague, maybe not by number 10. <laughs> I think he was already hardened. Yeah. You know, but... Well, then until the 10th one, when he just totally resigned himself to trying to combat this guy, okay, just take care of people and go. Right. He gave up, and he realized that he was outdone. But then he snapped back into the yeah. pharaoh. How dare you defy me? I'm a pharaoh, so I'm going to go get those people and teach them that this guy's not going to save them. I'm going to kill them all. Exactly. And what about the the, the cities, uh, the seven cities that Jesus witnessed to? What did he say about them? He said their guilt would be greater than Sodom's. So Pharaoh was hardened. The cities didn't listen. Does that mean that Moses should not have witnessed? Or does that mean that Jesus should not have witnessed? Neither. It wasn't the witnessing of truth that was harmful. You don't know when you're witnessing if someone's receptive or not. That's right. So you just kind of throw it out there. You kind of get the feedback. They're either going to be like, really shut up, stay away, or like, what? What are you talking about? Because their hearts are open. Right. Those types of thoughts. But there is harm done. Rejecting truth when it is witnessed to you is harmful. Harmful to them. It's harmful to the recipient. It sears the conscience. It hardens the heart. Um, and it damages those faculties that are sensitive and respond to truth so that the next time it's more difficult. Yes, Donna? Also, the universe is looking on. Absolutely. And when God pours out his love again on a city that maybe is hardened, it strengthens that witness. Yes. That he was truthful in not raising them the first, you know, in the first resurrection. Right. And again, if we are witnessing God's methods and God's principles, which are truth spoken in love and leaving people free, like you said, the universe is watching and that's what's, that's what's being displayed. We're witnessing truth to someone and leaving them free to respond in a positive way or to reject what we say. Yes, yeah, Stacy. It's also harmful, not directly uh, as a deliberate uh, result by the person who's witnessing, but it's harmful to the person who's being witnessed too when they keep rejecting truth and, and the Holy Spirit trying to wake them up and have a, re- a loving relationship with them in that ultimately the only people who go to heaven are those that trust God enough to obey him when they don't understand. But right. everything that he asks of us is only for good. It's only for our protection. It's only for our well-being. And so, those are the, so the rejection of the Holy Spirit is the only unpardonable sin. So when the Holy Spirit keeps trying to woo you, woo you, and you keep saying, "Shut up, go away, shut up, go away," this might be a very nice person who doesn't break laws and doesn't do cruel things. Right. So how is that person going to be judged to have eternal life or not? So every time they they shove God out of their life, they know that that person can't be trusted in in eternal life because they don't trust God. Because the only way we're going to have no more sin is because no one's going to even want to dream of doing it. That's right. And if God comes up with some law, don't do this, like eat a fruit, which it looks perfectly fine, you obey and you ask questions later instead of just doing things your own way. So every time they reject God, they're just sealing their own fate that much stronger and it's easier for that decision to be made by God. Wendell? This kind of goes one-directional. 
it seems like, and yet the research shows that it takes six or seven contacts with a Christian before someone will, will accept or make a change in their beliefs. Right. And so it doesn't mean that just because you have rejected it once that you are heading in the direction that Pharaoh did. Exactly. Especially if something, I mean, something you're telling them is radically different than anything they've learned before. We've experienced some of that here. Um, you've created some cognitive dissonance. Like you said, that they're, they're probably not going to jump on board immediately. You want to intrigue. You want to get somebody to ask questions. Yes. That's terribly encouraging. <laughs> Isn't it? Thank <laughs> you. It is. You know, you think that they're, you know. Right. So you kind of move on. You know. Persistence. Persistence. Yeah. And it's not just persistence. It To me, if you've come in contact and interacted probably on spiritual things six or seven times, you've developed a relationship with this person. You have a different connection than you had, like you said, at a, at a, a random encounter. Yeah. Whenever Christ went to the Samaritan village and then the woman and whatnot, he, he made a statement about, you know, others have labored and you're getting to reap. You know? Yes. And that implies that there's a lot of farm workers that never get any credit. Exactly. And don't we, don't you know <clears throat> that you are witnessing whether you know it or not? People are watching the way you live your life. They're watching the way you speak, the way you respond in negative situations and pressure situations. Um, the saying is, you know, preach a sermon. And if you have to use words, you're witnessing and you two or three or four people may have made an impact on a person before your divine appointment comes up. Okay. Let's see. So what if we witness because we want to have the most baptisms in the conference? That's selfishness. Wrong motives. And likely the wrong picture of God, if that's your motive. Jesus told the religious leaders in their day who felt like they were witnessing. What did he tell them they were doing to their converts? Yeah, they were twice the sons of hell than before the Pharisees got a hold of them. And so not only did these folks have to be brought to God in the first place, they now had to unlearn what they had been taught about the wrong God and reframe. Sound familiar? So in lesson two, we discuss the power of personal testimony and how telling people how your life has been changed by Jesus and your personal experience with him can be a winsome, effective witness. But we also talked about how personal experience, strong feelings and emotions can be deceptive or misleading or even false, which is why the three overlapping threads of evidence are so important. The integrated evidence-based approach. This is why experience and feelings must be checked against testable laws, evidence and reality. Remember this historic quote regarding people's experience. Mrs. White said, Satan leads people to think 
that because they have felt a rapture of feeling, that they are converted. But their experience does not change. Their actions are the same as before. Their lives show no good fruit. They pray often and long and are constantly referring to the feelings they had at such and such a time. But they do not live the new life. They are deceived. Their experience goes no deeper than feeling. They build upon the sand, and when adverse winds come, their house is swept away. Many poor souls are groping in darkness, looking for the feelings which others say they have had in their experience. They overlook the fact that the believer in Christ must work out his own salvation with fear and trembling. The convicted sinner has something to do. He must repent and show true faith. When Jesus speaks of the new heart, he means the mind, the life, the whole being. To have a change of heart is to withdraw the affections from the world and fasten them upon Christ. To have a new heart is to have a new mind, new purposes, new motives. What is the sign of a new heart? It's a changed life. There is a daily, hourly dying to selfishness and pride. Many of you experienced the need for not daily. Even Paul says, I die daily. That's not frequently enough for me sometimes. Hourly, more like it. So see how reality always has evidence associated with it. A genuine experience with Jesus is always evidenced by a changed life, change of heart, change of motives. That phrase of work out your own salvation, that one bothered me for a long time because salvation is not about work. Right. But the work of being present, of pausing to listen to the Holy Spirit. Of being willing to hear yes. what the Holy Spirit says, which and is going to be painful. Absolutely. By definition. And cooperating. Exactly. Like you said, dying to self, painful. Yeah. David describes it as the valley of the shadow of death. It's brutal. And it's repetitive for some of us. <laughs> but yes, we do have a work to do. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Our cooperation, our willingness to take the remedy. We have, he's not going to force his way in. We have to answer the door when he knocks. And the text that, that we named our ministry after, come let us reason together, though your sins are a scarlet, they may be white as snow. This reasoning, this working out our own salvation, like, like I talked about at the beginning, that's part of adopting and assimilating this truth, this, um, this is the bread and the, the wine. We're assimilating and internalizing the life death and resurrection of Christ into our own life, becoming partakers of the divine nature. So there is, I don't know if I would call it work, but there is a, a part and a cooperative uh, engagement with Christ. He, he will not save us against our will. The work to accept the invitation. Yes. Instead of the table, the work to be honest and vulnerable and bare, and the work to um, accept the, the incredible offer of relationship. Yes. And, and this work, again, it's not work if we have been infilled with the Holy Spirit and the love of Christ. We literally can't keep it to ourselves. It has to, it has to overflow. But this, this work of witnessing, for me, it's difficult. For some, it comes easy. 
For me, it does not. I'm not typically somebody that's just going to go up to somebody and uh, start a conversation. Or at least I wasn't. I got to say I am more now. So it is practice and it, it has to do with what you have to tell. And if what you have to tell is true and is, is yours, it's much easier to share that with others. There's also more than one method. Totally. For example, I am very much an introvert. Okay. So I am really not likely to walk up and talk to people. Now, if I'm at the barn, maybe where I kind of know I've got something, Mm -hmm. you know, in common that might, you know, be a little easier, but generally speaking, not my forte. Right. But I will talk to the people that I know and I will share with the people that I know. And if people ask me, yes, you know, which I've had happen. Absolutely. Um, I will help out, but there's also different talents that we all have. So I love to write mm-hmm. and, you know, in the past I've, I've written stuff up and shoved it on Facebook and, you know, had people come it gets a response. And it gets a response. Yeah. So we all have our different areas and, you know, pretty much throughout this entire thing, I've been looking at it going, yeah, thanks for the guilt. Yeah, thanks for that too. <laughs> right. You know, <laughs> because I'm not likely to do that. Right. Um, in fact, I mean, you don't even know the courage that it takes to speak up in a group like this. I do. Family. I do. You were on me. I'm aware. <laughs> I'm so aware. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's hard. I get it. And yet we do it, be, like you said, because it, it sort of jumps out of us. It's almost like you can't not. Different ways. It's just yeah. like you, you know, for those of us who have a failing of liking ice cream, when you find that flavor... That is amazing. Yes. You tell everybody, have you tried? Exactly. You gotta try it. You know, and that's why I think God says taste and see. Absolutely. Once you know, then you share in the various talents and the various ways that God needs you to do it. And we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit's role in, again, putting all the parts of the body working together. We don't all want to be an arm. And the other part of that, though, is who is it about? Yes. I'm supposed to talk to you right? because it's about me and my to-do list and what I'm supposed to do. Or is it that in this moment, this can be a blessing to you? Yes. I'm, and that's, that, that's the offering of the gift. And so uh, what you guys were talking about before about can it be harmful and the, the whole thing, if it, if it is because I am supposed to and it is imposed on to, to do the sharing, it can be detrimental. To both parties, I think. Yeah. It can drive drive distance. Right. And thank you for saying that. I mean, it does require, it's this daily, hourly dying to self because we, we are to love, we love our family. We love our friends. We love our fellow man so much. It says that they're stumbling in darkness. I think somewhere she says like a lamb on the way to the slaughterhouse. For people that don't know, it's Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And this compassion and what we have, what we know, the truth about God can save them. And so you really do have to put self aside and reaching them is more important than what they might think of me. It's important also to remember that the initial response, you know, 
can change. So I remember when I first started coming to this class, I was coming because I was intrigued, but I was also coming because I was sure he was wrong. Right. And I'm going to, I need enough information to, to prove that out. So I was, you know, I, I would come in and I would listen and I would go home and I would study and I'd come back and I would listen and I would go home and I would study and darned if he was right. I know. And, you know, all of that, that, that was part of why it was so important to keep coming back, yeah. keep listening to, to keep challenging myself. And people would ask, why do you go to that class? And I would answer. And the answer is still the same because it pushes me to study for myself. Yes. Amen. Thank you for saying that. And again, that is the only way that it becomes something, not just that we heard or learned at Sabbath school. It's something that I believe something that I have proven out with evidence and study. Yes, honey. Uh, Like with my daughter, she has uh, asked me not to talk about religious things. And so I've had to respect that. Mm -hmm. I still have, I still love her and I still do all I can. And in private, sometimes we talk about it, but you have to respect that person. Otherwise, if you push it on them, they're going to, you're going to, you're going to push them away. So um, it's just a prayer, constant prayer. I agree with that. And again, like I said, we are still witnesses, whether we're talking about religious things or not. And to me, it's what the design law principle gives us so many other avenues. You know what I mean? Because you can talk about the water cycle. You can talk about the, the carbon dioxide oxygen cycle without talking about religious things. You know what I mean? You can show this law of giving, this circle of, of beneficence that's built right into nature without necessarily talking about spiritual things. And like we've said before, you can preach and sometimes use words. You, exactly. She's still going to observe her mother and see totally. the character she has, the way that she talks and the way that she doesn't talk, the things that she does and the yep. things that she doesn't do, the way that she treats people and the way that she doesn't treat people. Absolutely. It's still preaching to her what Loudly. God does in you and how it, how it transformed you and the right. person you become. That's right. Did you have a comment, Donna? I know. Ditto what she was saying and that she is witnessing to her daughter by the way she responds in all things. In all things, yes. Okay. But they could say, wow, mom has changed. Yeah, mom is different. You know, because of what she has yeah. learned. Okay. And then that's what opens up their heart to hear what, you know, we're going through the same thing with our kids, you know, and and hopefully they see that we have changed. Yes. Then what we have to say will make a difference, but only then. <laughs> and they like what they see and they want that. Exactly. And there is, I think, no more real evidence uh, for the existence of God than the changed and transformed life. And I'm going to read a quote that talks about this is the evidence that we can provide to demonstrate Jesus is real. This is uh, from the Desire of Ages. See what you think about this. When the message of truth is presented in our day, there are many who, like the Jews, cry, show us a sign, work us a miracle. Miracles are problematic because they can be counterfeited. But people want something besides just a verbal testimony or a proclamation. They hear that as a claim without evidence. They want something more to base their faith upon, which is why oftentimes they'll ask for a sign or a miracle. Christ wrought no miracle at the demand of the Pharisees. He wrought no miracle in the wilderness in answer to Satan's insinuations. 
He does not impart to us power to vindicate ourselves or to satisfy the demands of unbelief and pride. Uh-oh. <laughs> so it sounds like it's possible that we might have to endure some ridicule, some accusation, some condemnation from people that might reject what we're what we're saying to them. As Christ did. But the gospel is not without a sign of its divine origin. Is it not a miracle that we can break from the bondage of Satan? How many of you have broken something that was holding you in bondage and you know that it was not in and of your own power, that it was miraculous? Enmity against Satan is not natural to the human heart. What is our natural heart? Selfishness. It's at enmity with God. So enmity against Satan is anti. It is opposite. It's implanted by the grace of God. When one who has been controlled by a stubborn, wayward will, hello, when they are set free and yield himself wholeheartedly to the drawing of God's heavenly agencies, a miracle is wrought. No doubt. So also when a man who has been under strong delusion comes to understand moral truth. So what is the miracle? The evidence that can be pointed to. The evidence of a life transformed to godly principles. The dishonest becomes honest. The exploiter becomes a protector. The cruel becomes kind. The fearful becomes courageous. The liar becomes honest. The cheat becomes trustworthy. Transformation of character is evidence of our risen Savior. Every time a soul is converted and learns to love God and keep his commandments, the promise of God is fulfilled. A new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you. The change in human hearts, the transformation of human characters is a miracle that reveals an ever living Savior working to rescue souls. A consistent life in Christ is a great miracle. This is God's witness before the world, which means we are God's witness before the world if we have been transformed and our lives have been changed. Yes. Just for those who are listening, I can see where how God transforms us and the liars become trustworthy and all that. And just make sure they're not thinking, oh, so it's salvation by works. No. No, it's just that our minds and our hearts start to get disgusted by doing cruel things. That's right. People, that something to, to appease ourselves at the expense of others. It's not, we're going to be so good that we're going to demand our right into eternal heaven. It's nothing like that. It's just that eternal life is no sin. That's that's way God originally designed us, and that's the way it's going to be in eternal life. And so it's, it's just that goodness to be kind is what overwhelms us. That's right. And it changes us. And again, the, the work that we do, just like I talked about at the beginning of class, there is, there is work to be done. We still have to choose. So when we're presented with the, the opportunity to be either cruel or kind, yes, the Holy Spirit has come in. He's changed our hearts. He's changed our motives. Our motives are, are to be kind now. But those neuropathways of a cruel response are deep and entrenched and reflexive. So we have to choose 
to do something different. And when we choose, we are empowered with the Holy Spirit. When we choose, our neurobiology is changed physically, characterologically, and those old neurons are killed off and new neurons are grown. And again, this is repeated. This is the work of a lifetime. And just like Paul says, the very thing I don't want to do is what I did. And the thing I want to do, I didn't do. This is a constant battle, but it's the sanctification process, the work of a lifetime. But our motives are different. Our reactions are different. And if we react in a way we didn't want to, we're crushed. It's not what we want to do. We want to do something different. We ask for help. Please let me do better next time. Let me not react that way next time. We don't try to justify our actions. We don't try to rationalize. Again, it's a different attitude. It's a different heart motive, even if the behaviors remain. Yeah. That makes sense. Try to go back like if we something jumps out and we injure somebody else and we, oh, I can't believe I did that. We go back. Yes. I'm so sorry. I'm trying to fix it. Yeah, it's not what I wanted to do. I'm trying to change that all. Yes, it's a completely different course of events than before. And that motivation of instead of being self-protective, of that fighting, hurting others. Yes. Self-protection, fear, and selfishness-based. That's right. That transformation to where Christ on the cross was, I would rather let you kill me then me use my power exactly. to kill you. That. Yes. Give yourself in love all the way. Yeah. Wendell. I think it's important also to remember that we still live in a broken world. Yes. We have good motives. We have good characters. We have God's spirit in us. We may do things that are not, that are mistakes. Yes. Because we live in a broken world. Absolutely. And we're making decisions based on broken ideas, um, broken st- structure. Yeah. You know, we are making f- valid decisions that may be mistakes, and yet that is part of where we are living. Right, even with the best intentions. Well said. All right, so we're moving up to lesson four, and we're not going to get through all of them, just FYI. So lesson four, we studied ways we can intercede for others, particularly the impact of intercessory prayer. What is the purpose of intercessory prayer? Is it to influence God to love more or to be more kind or to get God to do something good that he would not otherwise do? Is that why we we intercede for others in prayer? I know. And if God always wants to do good, he always wants to heal and save, then why do we need to pray? changes us what are god's methods and how does he achieve his goals does he ever violate free will or force his way in god won't force himself on anyone or on you so that's one aspect of prayer particularly intercessory prayer it's our free will consent to invite him in to that situation but is there another aspect does the process of praying have an impact upon the one who prays. Can our conversations with God be healing, transforming, transforming and maturing to us? Of course they, they are. There's an additional aspect of prayer that exercises our own individual mental energies. 
focusing our beings toward the welfare of others. So prayer not only brings God into the equation, but it allows us as believers to join our energies together and focus our intentions on healing. In God's universe, can this directly exert a positive influence? Yes. If we understand quantum physics and string theory, which of course I don't, <laughs> even close, but I'm fascinated by it. Did you have a comment, Stacey? Sometimes if you're praying on the behalf of someone, that connection that you are having, that deeper uh, interaction with God, sometimes the Holy Spirit fills you with an impression of something that you can do. Absolutely. To help that situation that you wouldn't have had otherwise. Totally. Not as receptive as you are as when you're communicating with them. And just like sometimes, um, like you're saying, uh, God always wants to protect us. But sometimes pe by people's decisions to do things that they know are wrong, they put themselves in jeopardy, like drinking and driving. I mean, yeah. Uh, but um, so they, they're, they're choosing their own. Uh, their, their decision or their own actions without God intervening and stopping them. But when you pray for their safety or whatever, then it's not like I control God's death, his actions, but we're asking for guardian angels to keep somebody safe right. in a very um, bad situation. There are answers to prayers for things like that, and I don't understand totally how all that works. I don't think we do. But asking to help in a situation, it is because of prayer, but... You can talk to God and ask him how that whole thing works and explain it to me. I yeah, <laughs> not so much. But I think it is important. It's about inviting him in or giving him permission into a situation where maybe the person that you're praying for was not actively inviting them in. And so in that situation, he's not going to violate the, that person's freedom. But you inviting them in gives him permission to act in a situation that maybe he would have not. Otherwise, again, we don't know. But the string theory, this quantum physics, again, don't understand it. All I can see it as is that we are all, the entire universe is physically connected, which again, if you believe all came from the spoken word of Christ, it's not a huge stretch to think that everything that has been created was created by him and is all some interconnected on some level, whether it's vibrations, whether it's little strings, I don't know. But this is not a stretch for me to think that we're all connected. And again, if you have ever had the weird coincidences where somebody you haven't thought of or mentioned their name or talked to, flash through your mind, and then minutes later, hours later, days later, you pass them on the street, they call you, you get an email, you get a text, and you think, nee, nee, nee. that was weird. And if it, especially if it, a lot, it happens a lot, you're thinking, that's got to be more than just coincidence. And if we get there, we're going to talk about bringing the Holy Spirit in. This is what he does. If we are praying, I'll, I'll skip there anyway. One of the lessons was spirit-led witness, and God forbid that we're attempting any of this witnessing endeavors without inviting the spirit in. And I'm talking about 
for the witnesser and the witnessee. We want to, and we had somebody here at class that, a couple of weeks ago who said that he'd had this experience where if you are praying for the Holy Spirit to put people in your path, put you in contact with people who are open, with people who are seeking, again, it may be a random moment, but you end up talking about deep spiritual things and they are open, they are seeking. Those barriers to entry are very low when those divine appointments are made. And th- th- this is what, this is what the Spirit does. Um, he's preparing people to be in contact with you days, weeks, months before the actual encounter occurs, which is incredible. Anyway. Because of that infinite love for everyone. Yes. And that interconnectedness, the strength theory, where it can be that that focused time deeply talking to God and a positive for the good of yes. and a positive outcome actually having changes on tissue. And right. They are separate. Yes. So I had the comparison. If if it's tough to imagine how these vibrations and strings or whatever could do anything positive, look at look at the physical manifestation. So you've got a person who can use their physical body, they can use their hands, they can use their elbows, Newtonian physics laws in place to massage tissue or to put pressure on a wound to perform CPR. To set a bone, those are all, those interventions are all healing. So too can our prayers through these quantum connections be healing. Doesn't have to be flesh on flesh. Isn't that interesting? So, lesson five, the next one was spirit, spirit led, spirit empowered witnessing. We talked about praying or having them prepare and convict hearts. The Holy Spirit can to have us cross paths, make divine appointments, but also to give us insight into unspoken needs. Because a lot of times when we come in in contact or encounter somebody, what they really need is not what they're talking about. That's layers deeper than what the conversation is. And the, the Holy Spirit can give us insights into what those unspoken needs are. And he can also Lord willing, give us the correct words to say. So think about this. This is a quote from Acts of the Apostles talking about the significance of the Holy Spirit. Wherever the need of the Holy Spirit is a matter of little thought, there is seen spiritual drought, spiritual darkness, and spiritual declension. You ever heard of that word? I had not, so I looked it up. <laughs> Declension means a condition of decline or moral deterioration. Oh. Have you watched the news? Mm-hmm. Are we seeing a period of spiritual declension oh, yeah. and death? Whenever minor matters occupy the attention, the divine power which is necessary for the growth and prosperity of the church and which would bring all other blessings in its train is lacking, though offered in infinite plentitude. What does that mean? She's saying that the divine power necessary for growing and making your church prosper is loaded up in a big train full of infinite blessings offered in infinite plentitude But when 
minor matters occupy our thoughts versus the things that actually matter. We don't get the train. We miss the train. We miss the blessings. We're burnt out, we're worn out, and we miss the train. He also causes us, and I, I recently had a conversation about this, to, there are many who fear the Holy Spirit. Yes! Ooh, we're going to talk about. There are many who um, don't believe he exists. Yeah. Um, or that if he does, he's not, he's just God's power. You know, there, there's so many ways to diminish. Yes. Um, and... And our church is guilty of that. It is. Um, I'm pretty sure it's kind of a pendulum swing the opposite direction, but we don't talk about the Holy Spirit. We don't talk about his role. It is a pendulum swing because wait till you hear what this author, one of the founders of this church, thinks about the importance of the Holy Spirit. Since this is the means by which we are to receive power, why do we not hunger and thirst for the gift of the Spirit? Why do we not talk of it? Pray for it and preach concerning it. So apparently there was an issue even back then. The Lord is more willing to give the Holy Spirit to those who serve him than parents are to give good gifts to their children. For the daily baptism of the Spirit, every worker should offer his petition to God. Companies of Christian workers should gather to ask for special help for heavenly wisdom that they may know how to plan and execute wisely. And I know we do that in this ministry. So, wait a minute, I want to I want to go to this this other quote because this is where it's talking about um the importance and what happens if we reject or don't value the Holy Spirit. This is from the Desire of Ages. In describing to his disp- disciples the office work of the Holy Spirit, which is interesting. Jesus sought to inspire them with the joy and hope that inspired his own heart, Christ's own heart. He rejoiced because of the abundant help he had provided for his church. The Holy Spirit was the highest of all gifts that he could solicit from his father for the exaltation of his people. What? The spirit was to be given as a regenerating agent and without this sacrifice of Christ would have been of no avail. Do you understand what they're saying here? Without this highest gift he could solicit from his father, everything he went through in his life, death and resurrection would have been no avail to us. The power of evil had been strengthening for centuries, and the submission of men to this satanic captivity was amazing. Sin could be resisted and overcome only through the mighty agency of the third person of the Godhead, who would come with no modified energy, but in the fullness of divine power. You understand that Christ, condescending to a human, incarnated, uh, he modified his energy. Yes. It says that God knows our every thought. And he talks to us through thoughts. It's almost like that ESP type mm-hmm. thing. So to have the spirit in you is to constantly let, it's like keeping the telephone connected. Yes. And it's a way of communication. It'll guide your heart, your thoughts, um, your desires, your goals, your mission, your joy, your mood. Yeah. It's just basically, it's just the connection with God. 
And what is he saying? What's the Holy Spirit saying when he when he talks to you? It says he will speak only what he hears from Christ. So he is making real that bread and wine in us. Wait, it's going to talk about that. Hold on. I'm going to continue with the quote. Let me go back to this sentence so we can start. Sin could be resisted and overcome only through the mighty agency of the third person of the Godhead who would come with no modified energy, but in the fullness of divine power. It is the spirit that makes effectual what has been wrought out by the world's redeemer. It is by the spirit that the heart is made pure. Through the spirit, the believer becomes a partaker of the divine nature. Christ has given his spirit as a divine power to overcome all hereditary and cultivated tendencies to evil. These are the neuropathways that we've been talking about all morning. And to impress his own character upon his church. That's a jaw dropper. Okay. Oh, man. It's already 20 after. Let me see if I've got something that we could... Uh, oh, we'll, ra- we'll wrap up on uh, one of the other... Oh, Lesson 7. So Lesson 7, I think, was also perhaps a little departure from the quarterly content. But we basically covered every single one of Christ's parables, but through a design law lens. So if you haven't read those or if you missed that lesson... Go get those notes and just download them, save them, because they're a keeper. So one point I wanted to, that really stuck with me, which is difficult, because a lot of times when I'm working back in the room, when you're concentrating on streaming the, pro, streaming the program, sometimes you don't get to listen as much. But this one stuck with me. So we talked about the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son, and kind of compared and contrasted them. What were the differences between the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son? Well, the lost coin was lost, but didn't know it was lost. The owner went out, searched for it, and found it. Amen. The lost sheep knew he was lost, but didn't know how to get home. And the owner searched for it and found it. Amen. The lost son knew he was lost, and he knew the way home. And the father waited for the son to make the choice to come home. Amen. Watched, waited every day with anticipation and ran to meet him. So what does, what does this reveal about the father or the owner? He's always, always working to woo, to heal, to save in whatever way is in our best interest and is the most healing and transformative for us. Okay, let's bow our heads. We'll close. Father, we're so grateful that what these stories reveal about you, the owner, the father, that you are constantly wooing, constantly searching for the lost to heal and to save. Um, We pray for this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, this highest of gifts that you solicited from your father. Uh, We want to be indwelled by the Spirit, and we want our witness to be Spirit-led. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.